This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast with Julie Brownman. It's a 60-game season for Major League Baseball. I think this is going to be weird and wacky and wild. Yeah, and, and you know what? It can be fun. It's different. It was never going to be greater than probably half a season. I think one time, it, it, it really is going to be intriguing. What will the broadcasting protocol look like for Drew? You know, at home, we will be at Coors Field. Uh, when the games are on the road, nobody in baseball, from a broadcast standpoint, will be traveling. So we'll do the games off monitors uh, in our studio. And former Rockies general manager Dan O'Dowd talks about what he thinks may have gone wrong between players and owners. I just think it's a breakdown in um, relationships. Life revolves around relationships, and and I think this one from day one started out in a in a bad place as far as um, empathy, trust, vulnerability. All the things that are necessary from a human component to get to a place where a deal gets done. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast with Julie Broman. Hey everybody, welcome to podcast number 5050 for the Drew Goodman Podcast with Julie Broman. Many thought we wouldn't get to number two. Here we are at 50. It has lasted longer than uh, several relationships I've had. Yeah, you too. Being around somebody for, what, 50 weeks. We've been in around each other for 50 weeks. That's a long time, Drew. Well, no, here's the key to it, Julie. The reason it works is we're only around each other for a few hours every seven days. That's why it works. It's a long distance relationship. So happy 50th to the Drew Goodman podcast with Julie Brahman. We do bring you good news. We will have baseball in 2020. Drew, you will be uh, attending, hopefully attending, 60 games in 2020. We're going to have some baseball. We're going to have baseball and... uh, (laughs) Boy, it was a simple process, wasn't it? That was just, uh, they, they looked that thing out over the last half dozen weeks or whatever it's been. It was an arduous process. It was an ugly process. It was unseemly. It was damaging to the sport we all love. Well, hopefully not too damaging. And even at the end, they didn't come to an agreement. Uh, Rob Manfred uh, invoked, he had the power to do it, the 60 games, which the players could have, you know, agreed to. And then they would have gotten actually more money in the postseason. They're basically, Julie, putting all their chips in the ability to file a grievance. And it's a risk because there's no guarantee you'll win a grievance, especially under the current circumstances that uh, the world exists in right now. So uh, there were some players, Trevor Bauer, who was very public on his Twitter account saying he doesn't understand why we gave up, you know, postseason money and forgiveness on money that was advanced to them in late March. Uh, And I'm sure he's not alone in that sentiment. But from a baseball fan's perspective, as you announced a a short while ago, there's going to be baseball 60 games starting on July 24th. And at the end of the day, that is good news. It's great news. We're taping this podcast on a Tuesday night, a week from tomorrow, a week from Wednesday. Teams are reporting to their home fields to begin practicing again. No spring training. Nobody will go to their spring training complex. So in in a week, Drew, by the time this comes out in a week, we're going to see major league teams getting back together again. You said around July 24th is when we're going to see games, 60 games. Okay. So we know all the problems getting to the 60. However, for many reasons, this is going to be a very intriguing season in that usually we play 162. 60 is a sprint. This is going to be, I think this is going to be weird and wacky and wild. I really do. Yeah. And and you know what? It can be fun. It's different. It isn't traditional. We understand why. 
And even had they been able to negotiate more games, it was never going to be greater than probably half a season. So any way you spin this, it was going to be a sprint. And I think one time it, it, it really is going to be intriguing. Think about this, Julie. The Washington Nationals, even if there was an expanded playoff field, would not have made the playoffs after 60 games last year. And we know they ended up world champions. You know what team would have, though? The Colorado Rockies. I think it'd be our Colorado Yeah. Well, you know, the thing about baseball, sometimes people don't like about baseball is it's such a long season and maybe they feel like, you know, like in football, there's 16 games. With 162 games, you feel like, well, there's not as much importance on every single game. This season, there really is going to be importance on almost every single game, on every single road trip, on every single homestand. I mean, that's... That's a bit riveting to a baseball fan, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can't you can't start slow or screwed. Yeah, absolutely. I forget who the guest was. It may have been Scott Oberg a few weeks ago when we were asking him about you know playing like half a season's worth of games, um, or, or maybe it was Buddy Black. I can't remember. And he said, "Well, it, it basically is every game's going to be worth two games, so you really can't afford to lose five or six in a row. Much more difficult to recover." than when you're playing the marathon that is 162 games. Now, it's not every game's not worth 2.0, it's worth almost two and a half games from what, you know, you normally look at. So you you have to be sharp each and every day. So we know, well, I think we know there's no there's going to be no fans in the stands. Has broadcasting the games? Have you guys talked about that? Does anything change from your perspective or it's way too early to even talk about that? No, we've been we've been having conference calls every week, and Major League Baseball has you know handed down um, what they want to see, and and it's you know dramatically different even for us, and and we all have to adjust. So, you know, at home we will be at Coors Field in our booth, but you know, separate entrance. We will not have access as we normally do, you know, to to being in the clubhouse and batting practice, where you're able to to talk to players freely and and get anecdotes and and get updates on how guys are feeling and maybe what transpired the night before. Uh, that's just not feasible right now because naturally for, for health reasons, they want to limit uh, how many people are coming in contact with each other. Uh, when the games are on the road, nobody in baseball from a television, uh, from a broadcast standpoint will be traveling. So we'll do the games off monitors uh, in our studio, which from a, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's going to be a challenge. It's completely different than how you'd want to do it. But as I said a moment ago, these are different times and and difficult times. And so you have to uh, to make the proper adjustments. Uh, so, you know, that's that that's what will take place. And, you know, but each night starting on July 24th, you can kick your feet up and Rockies baseball is going to be on. And each game is going to have, as we were just discussing, uh, far greater importance than just a normal game on July 24th to 25th, man. You got to win and you got to win, a, you know, a lot because it is a sprint. So a little squirrel on you. I saw that Mark Cuban was talking about, they were talking about the in the NBA pumping in crowd sound. Have you guys even had those discussions? Um, yeah, it's it's come up. And I don't know if we have come to a resolution as to how we're going to handle um, the our broadcast, whether we're, you're going to pump in, you know, crowd noise and crowd celebrations and cheers, um, but we'll probably be having a lot more conversations about that, you know, here in the coming days. I was just focused on one thing. I was just getting, you know, 
hoping to get baseball back on the field. Right. And those are conversations, I think, to come. There's a lot of conversations to come. And I would say this. I think that this, I know that the players, um, there was a proposal that Major League Baseball had to the players about health and safety when we're talking about COVID. I do think, even in all sports, I think that's going to be fluid. I think that that's going to change. And that's going to be one of the stories, you know, I think to watch is um, what we say today may not be happening um, in August. So are the Rockies, are the Rockies built for a sprint? Would you say right now? Well, it's a great question. I've gotten this on radio interviews quite a bit lately and just wandering around aimlessly. I'm always wandering around aimlessly. Uh, People have asked, you know, (laughs) will this benefit the Rockies? And, And this was before they came to an agreement um, or, or before the news of the day. And was, we knew it was going to be a shorter season. The way I'd answer that is offensively, I really like where the, the Rockies are. And I think with the DH, because the DH will be in play this year, it benefits the Rockies uh, more than, than than many teams because Daniel Murphy, who you know I think looks to have a bounce back year, you can – not play him at first base as much. Play Ryan McMahon, who's a much better defender there at first. Garrett Hampson, some at second. You can play or, or give a break to Charlie Blackman a little bit uh, in the outfield. And Charlie wants to play in the outfield. He should play, you know, right field. But you know, if it's if it's on the fifth day after four in a row, maybe you get him uh, off his feet and you still have his bat in the lineup because of the presence of the DH. So I think all of those things will benefit the Rockies offensively. Where the Rockies, I think, have an underrated rotation, there is not a lot of depth there. So I like their rotation. I like the first five on paper. But after that, there are question marks and some significant ones potentially. And so having good health, which is always a bromide for success, I think is particularly so when it comes to the Rockies in this 60 game sprint. You know, I've always considered Buddy Black a very patient manager. I think he's maybe I don't know if it's because he was a player, but I feel like he gives players a chance to work out of a slump, maybe gives them the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't have a quick hook. I think all baseball managers may have a quick hook this year. Would you agree? Yeah, you 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 probably will manage with a little more anxiousness, a little more realization that you can't say, hey, it's it's still May, folks. It's early. I mean, managers always remind the media of that when they want to make a mountain out of a molehill when a team loses three or four in a row and it's mid-May or late April. Well, guess what? You know, if, if you start the season as they normally do at the beginning of April, actually it was going to be late March this year, and you're talking about mid-May, mid-May, folks, is the last quarter of the season. I mean, that's how quickly this thing's going to go. It's going to be 60 games in about 66 days, something uh, along those lines. Uh, So to your point, yeah, you're going to see managers and general managers make personnel decisions in a much different way than they ordinarily would. That's going to be intriguing to watch. There's so many storylines that we're going to dive into, but we definitely wanted to bring the news and talk about the news that, yes, we're going to have baseball and, and when that's going to get started. You did a really good interview with former Rockies general manager Dan O'Dowd, who's now with Major League Baseball. You talked to him not only about what's been happening with negotiations, but the game of baseball, which you both love so much. We're going to hear that interview coming up. But first, we're going to tell you about Boyer's Coffee. And as we do every single podcast, 
We're going to have Mark tell you about it. Cool down with a deliciously smooth iced Boyer's Coffee. Boyer's Coffee has been fueling Colorado's summer fun for over 50 years. Roasted locally and delivered weekly to your local grocery store. Boyer's Coffee has the perfect roast or flavored coffee for you and your family. Marky, thanks much. We love our Boyer's Coffee. Also uh, love our good friends at Ideal Home Loans. Brent Ivinson's company, they're coming up on uh, an anniversary. It'll be 20 years next year that they've been serving not only the state of Colorado, but also down in Arizona. And they've done such a marvelous job. They have repeat customers like me because they take care of you. They care about you. And they're absolute experts in what they do. Give them a call, 303-867-7000, 303-867-7000. If you're buying a new home, if you're refinancing, wonderful time to do so. We know interest rates are at historic lows. If you're consolidating debt, these are difficult times. We're trying to save a bucket at every corner. They can help you do that. They have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They're fantastic. Ideal Home Loans, 303-867-7000, 867-7000. They bring us our interview each week, the Ideal Home Loans interview this week, the former Rocky general manager and uh, now a five-year-plus broadcaster for MLB Network, Dan O'Dowd. Well, Dan, as we take this on a uh, Monday evening, about an hour or so ago, we got word that the Players Association voted down the 60-game proposal. Was that a surprise to you? And uh, in the same breath that uh, you answered that, I-, I will also ask you, where do we go now? Well, Drew, at this point in time, I don't think any anybody – it's anywhere close to the process, and I'm not um, could say anything is a surprise. And I truly don't know um, where we go now as an industry. I think it's one of those negotiations where, I mean, unless you're actually either in the room or part of the discussions that um, are a byproduct of what happens in the room, it's really hard to speculate on what the next step actually is, because I do, don't understand all the legal ramifications. I will say to you, the more I've thought about this, it's just a classic example for me of having negotiated so many different contracts over over the years. It's it's obvious it's easier to say no than it is to say yes, You because know, if you say no to everything, then you're never wrong. Uh, it's when you say yes to a deal that you open yourself up to criticism. And and ultimately, I'm, I'm just not sure that um, some people knew where they wanted to go to in negotiations. And when you don't know where you want to get to at the finish line, then you just say no all the time. Yeah, you, you mentioned you've done a, a ton of these, not players association versus owners, but, but so many – player contracts. And, and I'm and I'm sure there are certain agents that you enjoy working with, uh, some that you're kind of middle of the road, and there's some that probably uh, you didn't enjoy working with. But at the end of the day, you need to. Wh- why did it take so long, even given the pandemic, for Commissioner Manfred and Tony Clark to get in the same room? I mean, that seemed like a no-brainer. You know, Drew, I can't answer that question again because, you know, I'm really not. I'm no closer to it than you are right. at this point in time. But I always felt there was a hesitancy for for people that negotiated with me to ever really sit down and really try to resolve situations if they really they didn't know where they wanted to end up in the negotiation. They were totally unsure of what they wanted the final deal to look like. So they never wanted to take that next step to really engage to what that may look like. 
because they didn't want to get put in a decision, a position to have to make a decision. I, I, for me, reading the tea leaves, I believe that probably might have been the case here. When you look at, at both parties and, and where we started, how do you how do you analyze each side's position currently? I just think it's a breakdown in uh, relationships. I think at the end of the day, life revolves around relationships and whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, you know, they're a byproduct of being able to accomplish things in, in both in a personal life and a professional life. And I think this one from day one started out in a in a bad place as far as um, empathy, trust, vulnerability, um, all the things that are necessary from a human component to get to a place where a deal gets done. For whatever reason, it didn't seem like it existed for day one. If you could look in the crystal ball, which we've all been trying to do in this game for, for now weeks on end, and so it's kind of a, a silly question, but I'll ask you to go through the exercise anyhow. Uh, what are we going to have? Are we going to have some sort of season? Will it be uh, you know kind of unilaterally implemented by the commissioner, or, or what's your thought now? You know, I, I have felt all along that there's going to be a season. I don't – I always say this. I don't know enough to be a pessimist, so I'm going to keep that, you know, train of thought in relation to this area intact. But I would say I'm a little bit less optimistic than I was at some point in time, especially with the spike in the uh, COVID-19 in some of the cities that our teams do play in. Um, so I, I'm just not sure what's the eventual outcome of this. Because, you know, you got to remember that, you know, you also have to have, I think, 23 owners approved playing a season two. And i got to imagine there's got to be some market dynamics in certain situations that are challenging right now. What kind of damage do you think has been done to the game overall? Or do you think that, yeah, people are angry, fans are angry right now, but they get over it, uh, you know, we Everybody harkens back to what happened in 94 and 95. But, you know, you've been in this game a long, long time. From your perspective, uh, has there been significant damage done now? And how much worse could it get? Well, you know, Drew, I'd lived through 94 in Cleveland. We actually were just up in Boston playing the Red Sox, won a big game. And we had closed the deficit to the White Sox to a very small amount. We felt really good. We knew we were good. We started to see it really coming. Um, and then we went through a replacement year um, in spring training the following year that was really turned into a debacle and wasn't good for our game. But, you know, our attendance and our fans rebounded once we started playing again. In fact, in Cleveland, we went on a four-year run of consecutive sellouts. But we have never, ever faced the uncharted waters that we are in today uh, society-wise, not just the game of baseball. Unemployment at its highest rate since the Great Depression so much uncertainty surrounding so many people's lives that I really don't know. I mean, I really don't know. It's a it's a time of great consternation and uncertainty for anyone that truly loves the game of baseball and what it means to the fabric of our society. You're an analytical uh, person. Do you think sometimes some of this has been lost on on the overall parties that uh, this is really not the time to be having uh, a knockdown drag out? I think there's really intelligent people at both sides of the table. I think they have to know that. And for whatever reason, they just couldn't get over their divides as relates to the bigger picture going on in our society right now. 
to be able to get a deal done. And I hark back on what I said at the beginning of this is that, you know, to get a deal done, both sides have to want to get a deal done. If there's one side that does not want to get a deal done because they simply don't know what deal they want, you know, ultimately you're not going to get a deal done. How much will this bleed into the, the negotiations, ultimately, of the CBA when it concludes at the end of 2021? Well, unless relationships have improved dramatically from where they're at now, I mean, you know, certainly there'll be a, a spillover over effect in some way, shape, or form. I think it'd be naive not to think so. But, you know, there's a lot of time between now and then. So my hope is, you know, relationships are an ebb and flow. And my hope is that there's a lot of healing that gets done between now and then, and we're in better places again. And the trust level and the empathy level and the ability to communicate through tough issues, um, you know, there's a framework for that to happen. How much, Dan, in terms of creativity, could be done if they go and play 50 or 60 games this year? Uh, and how much would you welcome to try and – uh, help the game evolve with with the next generation uh, of people that will hopefully take in the game. Uh, true. If you're ever going to try anything, this is just the perfect opportunity to try things. And then be, you know, you have to be mature enough that if you look at it and say that it didn't work, then it didn't work. The worst thing with ideas, because, you know, I tried a ton of things. Mm -hmm. And what I learned is that when things don't work, you compound maybe not a good decision by trying to make it work. So as long as you're of the mature mindset to say, hey, we're going to try all this and we're just going to see what works and be very objective about what works and doesn't work, I think it's a wonderful opportunity for our sport to maybe evolve into something that we aren't right now. Did you Do you have anything that, you, that comes out of left field, so to speak, uh, that, that you've thought about and maybe advanced privately? I mean, I, I personally like the extra inning rule a ton. Uh, I mean, you and I both know we had children at that age. I think the runner on second base creates a, that, that feeling of anticipation of pressure, of excitement, because there's going to have to be something that helps. I mean, I look at the bigger picture a little bit, Drew. Um, I mean, I, I would like to see, you know, the whole way players are compensated change based upon, you know, productive outs and non-productive outs. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'd like to see strikeouts decline dramatically. I think I'd like to see where walks are not counted as walks unless it's what I call an earned walk. Um, so, so many pitches per at bat is an earned walk. If you get walked lower than that, it doesn't help your on-base percentage at all and doesn't help you get paid. Um, and I'd like to see more of an emphasis put on guys that actually have greater pitch ability than velocity. Uh, because I think it, it creates a, a better game. So I, I look at things more of an issue of not so much rule changes, though some of those will reflect rule changes. I would like to see a total change in how the game is played on the field to better reflect the tremendous athleticism and gifts of the players involved. I don't like three true outcomes in any way, shape, or form. I, I think it leads to a very unappealing product on the field. Yeah, one of the things I came up with, and this was a shock to me because I've always been a a baseball purist, traditionalist. I think the game is uh, yeah. is such a wonderful game. But I threw this out there again, crazy idea. I was talking to Brian Anderson about it last week, and that is if you if you compare our game, Dan, to the NBA and the NFL, whether that's fair or unfair. Those teams, or excuse me, those sports can easy in a more easy fashion produce super superstars. 
the LeBron James, the Patrick Mahomes, et cetera. And part of it is as great a player as Mike Trout, as Nolan Arenado, uh, you know, as Cargo when he was in his prime. In a typical game, even hitting near the top of the order, they're going to get up four times. And there are many nights they really can't impact the game. Mike Trout may have, you know, two putouts. Nolan Arenado may get three ground balls in a game as, as great as he is defensively. And so I thought about this and I said, all right, we're so used to NBA players, the great ones taking the last shot. What if one time a night the manager can stride out to the home plate umpire and say, hey, we're going to bat out of order here. We're going to use our hitter's card and Nolan Arenado, even the eight holes up in the eighth inning, it's a two-run deficit. The bases are loaded. We're going to have Nolan take this at bat. And so your superstars have another opportunity uh, to be on display. Crazy, Dan. I never thought I would say this before, but um, I'm just going to get your initial reaction. Well, I mean, it's very, very creative. I, you know, Drew, to me, the bigger issue of why the NBA can have mega superstars in baseball can is that there's five players on a court with a team and there's 25 in the game of baseball. Yep. And it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to create that around the player. But I do think as a sport, we can do a better job of turning every player in a local market into a national star and how we market and we really provide a platform for that player to become something more than what Nolan Arenado just represents to the Colorado Rockies. Um, I believe that even beyond a rule change can be accomplished. I really do. But, I, you know, again, I think we should look at everything in the game right now that showcases our best players because they really are. I mean, they are so talented. I mean, it's just crazy. I love to see yeah. skill competition in, you know, at the All-Star game. You know, let's let's really do a skill competition and, like they do the dunk contest. Well, let's let's do trick fields, trick fielding plays. You know, uh, you get ten ground balls, and let's see what you can do with those ten ground balls. I mean, we see some jaw dropping things. I mean, there's so many. Our players can do so many unbelievable things. Put your scouting hat back on, Dan. I think you kind of alluded to this. Is the quality of the baseball athlete here in 2020? How much significantly better than when you entered the game in the 80s and, and, and through the 90s? I would say they are uh, stronger, physically more gifted, but I don't think they're better players because I don't think necessarily – they've grown up now in an era of showcase baseball, not an era of playing the game to to um, – showcase how to win a game. So let me give you what I mean by that a little bit more specifically. So a showcase player gets a ground ball at shortstop, and he is uh, ranked, so to speak, based upon his velocity of, of his ability to throw the ball across the diamond. Back in the 80s, Omar Vizquel, who had maybe a forearm, fringy five-arm, but his glove-to-hand transfer and his pop time, glove-to-first, was good or better than any shortstop in the American League because he was able to put his body into a position to execute a skill that ended up being rewarded as a big league player. And so though the, today's players are more gifted, I don't think their gifts are as um, pliable within a game of baseball from a movement pattern standpoint than they were in players in, in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, that's well put. Um, you know, I, I always 
I utilize uh, David Eckstein as an example. Dave, there's no way David Eckstein would stay on the left side of the infield in today's game in a million years. I mean, they wanted, uh, they would have typecast him completely, no doubt. Yeah, he wouldn't even be playing. David Eckstein wouldn't play in the big leagues in today's game. He would he not would, even have gotten a chance to play in the big leagues. I don't. I don't know if he ends up at the University of Florida. I don't want to beat him up. He had a terrific career, but right, the way recruiting goes now. Because of those showcases? And I think if we want to change the game at the big league level, we have to change the game at the youth level. And we have to reward kids based upon, you know, Drew, I am, it's so interesting for me now in what I've done for the last five years, because when you're part of running a team, your, your execution skills on seeing the big picture is almost null and void because every day you're just trying to put out fires and stay ahead of the, of the next next one that's coming. And so what I see now in, a, in the evaluation process with our games, that we really need to move away from what we define tools as and start defining what tools really are. Arm strength is not a tool unless it's applicable within the game of baseball. A, a, a great 60-yard time doesn't mean anything if it's not applicable in the game of baseball. Power means nothing if you can't consistently get to it. Uh, having a 95-mile-an-hour fastball means nothing, you know, if you can't consistently locate it. Having high spin rate is not more important than throwing a strike. So we really need to kind of, for me anyway, look at how we evaluate players in the game at a youth level and reward baseball scholarships in college and reward draft picks if we really want to change how the game is played at the picnic level. Players are going to chase a reward system. We just have to change the reward system. And, Dan, I say this all the time, and I know you and I have had this conversation uh, at some point over the years um, to, to how you illustrated that. It's very difficult for a recruiter, uh, a college coach, even a scout, to show up at a field and try to truly evaluate uh, a kid on three or four at-bats and a couple of ground balls. There are many, many players that you have to, if you had the luxury to do so, watch over a two or three week period. Just like Dan, when you were scouting and you'd go into, you know, Tulsa and watch that team play in double A for you you do it for a week at a time. You get a feel for 25, 30 at bats, how a guy approaches every game, how he takes ground balls in between innings, and you get a feel for the baseball player, not just the raw ability. And Drew, I couldn't even do it over that many at bats and looks. because I, I could be seeing a kid during a really bad stretch of a long season. That's why it takes multiple looks from multiple people to get it right. My concern about our game is what people are actually looking at anymore. And the last up-team drafts that I've done, I think we're moving away from that more and more and more. And I, I just feel like that, that thought process ultimately leads to players at the big league level, and it becomes, for me, a very unappealing product if we can't put our athleticism on display on a regular basis. And the only way to do that is that, one, there needs to be more strikes on the mound, and number two, there needs to be more balls put in play. And that's when the game becomes a really fun, enjoyable game to watch. Dan, I want to go back. When you when you were the general manager, one thing the Rockies, and, and we all know the struggles of pitching at altitude, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right now, but the reputation – uh, that that Billy Schmidt and, and and obviously you were there for a great number of years in terms of produce not only drafting seemingly the right guys but developing and it's continued 
uh, impact bats and not just impact bats at altitude, impact bats that some of them had, you know, got moved along and, and played in other cities and continued to perform, excuse me, perform at a high level. Was there a certain philosophy that allowed you guys to be successful with position players? The simpler you keep your approach in scouting, the more consistent your results are. Bottom line. Mm-hmm. And when you look at hitter, for me, hitters hitters that do two things exceptionally well, and I believe one can be taught. I'm I'm still working on whether I think the second one can be taught. Guys that have great pitch recognition skills are always going to control the strike zone. I think that can be taught, you know, more so than any point in time in history. But if they already have it coming in, that means you're always going to be in plus counts versus minus counts. And when you're in plus counts versus minus counts, if you have the second thing, which is the ability just to hit. I mean, just to bring the barrel, the bat to the ball. If you can do those two things exceptionally well, you're going to be a good big league, you're going to be a good big league hitter. I mean, that's the bottom line. Power comes over time. I can give you hundreds and hundreds, thousands of players that powers come over time. If you can't do those things very well, to me, it doesn't mean you're not going to be a big league hitter. It's just mean that when you're out scouting, then you're all over the map and what you're looking for. You're, you're all over the map. Any, any, it's, it's not one, one size fits all. And that becomes a really challenging way to evaluate players. So I think the Rockies have done a great job simplifying their scouting system, which then makes, makes it easier in their development system to augment the strength of those players to be the very best they can be. I think the clubs that do, that, that uh, scout well, scout well because they have a defined philosophy of what they're known for and what they do well at. You know, I, I look at, what you were describing with, with hitters. And to me, you know, we, we all see these super pretty swings and bat speed now, and there's a lot of ways with blast motion to analyze swings and, and how long they stay on plane, et cetera. But we've all seen the guys that have unbelievable bat-to-ball skills. They find the barrel more frequently than everybody else, even if their body gets out of position and those guys flat out hit. Those guys. I mean, I mean just look at the Rockies. Uh, Charlie Blackman does that. No one does that. Trevor has developed that, but Trevor's really developed his, his pitch recognition zone. David Dahl, when healthy, does that on a consistent basis. Uh, DJ LeMayu, when he was there, he probably was the poster child of the ability to do that. Tulo, in his prime, was really good at doing that. Matt Holiday was really good at doing that. Garrett Atkins was really good at doing that. I mean, there's a there's a long list of guys that just were really good doing that, and there's a common theme amongst all those guys. I mean, they're really good major league hitters. Hey Dan, as competitive as you are, how I don't I want to say difficult, but has it been an enjoyable um, conversion from being a, an executive in a front office and running a baseball club and, and its entire operation to now analyzing on a regular basis on television and and uh, doing that for a living. Yeah, transition is really hard. Change is wonderful. Transition is is as challenging a thing as you ever go through in your life. And everybody's anybody who runs a ball team is going to go through a transition. You know, as I say, it's like a milk carton with an expiration date. At some point in time, you're going to hit your expiration date. And I many people argued near my end of my tenure in Colorado, I overstayed that expiration date probably about five years. Um, and so the first couple of years were incredibly challenging, Drew. I mean, I can't tell you how hard it was. 
um, really trying to develop a sense of self-worth and that competitive fire, trying to find a way to channel it. But I think as you as you as you get through it and you get to the other side of it, you begin to realize, you know, what a blessing it was that you had an opportunity to do something that's so unique and so special for the bulk of your life. But then you also realize, hey, you know what? This this allows me to actually have a life, a uh, life I did not have before. And when you get to that point in time, you realize what a blessing it is that you're in the position you are now. Do you, are, do you enjoy it most of the time, the ability to stay in the game and to, you know, analyze a, a bunch of different clubs and a bunch of different topics on a regular basis? Obviously, this particular time is different because of what we're all going through. But, you know, day in and day out when, when there are games and, and players to be evaluated and conversations to, uh, to advance? I do, Drew. Yeah, I really do. I, I, I do from my perspective. But I have to tell you, man, I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner. I have learned a ton from the other analysts I've been around. I mean, they, you know, it's been humbling, which is what's so great about the game. You know, Clint Hurdle's favorite line, there's two types of people in the game of baseball. Those are humble. Those are about to be. It's amazing how much I have learned over the last five years of doing this about the game that I never looked at it from the perspective that um, that they do. And so that's been really enjoyable for me is, you know, picking the brain of so many incredibly gifted baseball minds that have, have actually played the game on the field, but being able to sit with them and have a discussion with them without the pretext of a GM player relationship has been, oh, man, intellectually extremely stimulating for me. So I've really enjoyed sharing my thoughts and ideas from my prison, my life experiences, but I've enjoyed just as much as learning about things I've never thought of before within the game of baseball. Well, I know you'll appreciate this. You know how much I love, you know, being involved in coaching the sport. I can't tell you how many times I have regurgitated Clint's uh, a number of mechanisms. Sure. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the one about there's two kinds of players. Because I, I think it helps, Dan, make young players, even if they're really talented, better teammates because, um, you know, the, the, the line, uh, the, far be it for me usually to quote the Bible, but the line, you know, by the grace of God, there goes me. I'm, I'm probably butchering it, but you know what I mean, where the, the kid who's never really experienced the, the one for 15 and, and maybe snickering at a kid who's struggling because that is that kid as soon as he gets to a different level. I agree completely with you. You know, I, I think that's the greatest thing about the game of baseball I think it's about the greatest. It's the one sport that's a team sport, but it's so fail. It's an individual failure-based sport, and uh, I think kids learn to deal with adversity in the game of baseball more than any other sport because you get exposed <laughs> so much on a baseball field. And I think that what it teaches you about humility is that you're only one mistake away from not being very good, and that's what the game of baseball is all about. So it really, really teaches kids that they really have to depend upon other people to help them along the way. And it teaches them to understand that they have to themselves be resilient to be able to deal with all the stuff the game throws at them. And those those lifelong skills are going to allow them to do so much in their lives, whatever they choose to do. Hey, I want to talk to you about a project. You, uh, you, you've you made a, a family project in a moment. But I want to ask you, and I, I did this when you were kind enough to sit down with me when I was doing the book uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I think it's fascinating for fans, especially diehard Rockies fans, to know, hey, were there any trades that, uh, you know, that, that didn't happen, that you wish did, that, that were close to happening, that maybe you could share? Oh, man, Drew, you caught me on that one. Uh, 
No, not really. I mean, all the ones that I wished to happen that didn't happen ended up being a blessing that a blessing that they, you know, that they didn't happen because they wouldn't have worked out very, very long, you know, and well in the long run. Uh, and I find that most trades that kind of work its way out that way. There were some players that um, we had opportunities to move that my aggressive nature probably would have done that. Um, but I think now that for whatever reason they didn't happen, you know, like the Todd Helton trade with the Red Sox. I mean, I'm so glad now that that didn't happen because, I mean, I think it's an incredible uh, value for the Rockies that Todd Helton was signed and drafted at the University of Tennessee and spent his whole career in Colorado, and I believe we'll get into the Hall of Fame someday on some ballot as representing – I know Larry's going to go in that way, but – Todd, for me, truly represented more than anybody because he was signed, developed, and spent his entire uh, career in Colorado. The interesting part about that deal is one of the players coming back in that deal was Mike Lowell. We ended up playing each other in the World Series that year, and Mike Lowell ended up being the MVP of that World Series. So, you know, that's how the game of baseball sometimes works out. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. Dan, Dan you started uh... – a company called Win Reality a, a few years ago, and I find this fascinating. I, I've had the opportunity to use it. Um, where uh, I'm involved with, as you know, in, in Colorado with, with a coaching facility, they have it uh, right there in the lobby. And uh, I, I'll let you explain what it does and the evolution of it. You know, honestly, it's more of my son's company. Chris is, you know, Chris got a chance to play six years himself. He's the CEO of the company. Ryan Bennett is our our VP of business development, he played nine years in the minor leagues. And every young man that works in our front office has played baseball in some way, shape, or form. Through the, the, the bottom line is, is that the one skill that can't be taught within our game, other than lives at bats, is um, pitch recognition skills. Um, and no matter how many pitching machines you put on the mound or how much live BP you throw, there's no way to replicate game speed other than the game itself. So we – we, meaning Chris, created a product that basically takes live game footage and replicates it in a mixed VR, AR, a mixed reality experience. It's simple to use. It's gamified. And it is uh, as close to lifelike as you possibly can. We have about 20 big league clients. We have about 60, 60 colleges. And very soon we'll be rolling out our first entry-level product uh, into the at-home user market. So everybody in every home in the, in the country will have a baseball and eventually a softball application. And so what it does, it allows you, you know, baseball for me is a sport about balance, rhythm, and timing. So if you see it early enough out of hand, that allows your timing to be uh, more consistent, which allows you to be on time to the ball within the strike zone on a more consistent basis. And for the players that have used it and we've tracked their success, it's incredible the improvements uh, we've seen in their game from utilizing the product. You know, we've had the MVP of the National League a year ago basically use our product from day one all the way through the end of the season. Cody, Cody Bellinger. Yeah, we have many stories like that out there. And we're very proud of it because, you know, we you know we really feel like we're making a difference in, in kids' ability to play the game at a, at a higher level or at least play the game to whatever their skill capacity is going to allow them to play the game to. The, the the area that that I think you've really um, 
it deserved to garner attention. And the reason it, it makes so much sense is what you touched on a few moments ago. You look at every other major sport, and if you get after it from a scrimmage standpoint, whether it be an inside run drill in football or, or obviously scrimmaging in basketball, ice hockey, the same thing, you can come close to replicating what will happen at night when you actually play the game for real and there's fans in the stands, et cetera. Baseball, you can't do that. BP at 5 o'clock is at 55 miles an hour. Heck, you and I, Dan, can still take BP at, at 55 miles an hour. And then you got to go hit 95 two hours later. Uh, so this this helps in that regard. And the other thing is, for me, so let's say you're coming off the bench as a pinch hitter and you may see two arms, you may see uh, – you know, from the left side, this guy, you may see a Wade Davis on the right side, you know, you, utilizing the Rockies a, as an example, you know, Jake McGee from the left side. You can go up to the tunnel as a pinch hitter and say, and look at, you know, 15 pitches of both of those guys, which has to be a benefit when you get in the box a few minutes later. No doubt. No doubt. You know, that's the game preparation part at the major league level. That clubs, you know, clubs have just utilized it different ways and different capacities and in a variety of different sequences. But that's one of the ways the clubs have used it without a doubt. And we've had some teams actually win games last year based upon their ability to see pitches and pitchers, you know, right before they're going to have a pass against them. You know, Vanderbilt University, uh, one of our clients, was able to see all of the University of uh, Michigan starting pitchers um, that entire series, but they spent hours and hours in the uh, in their system in a hotel room, in a conference room in Omaha before game three. And uh, if you watch that game, I mean, their takes were incredible that game. And that's because they had seen all those arms uh, a number of times, sequencing how they were going to attack them in that given game based upon how they had pitched them in the two previous games. Yeah, again, that's win reality. Dan, I'll let you go with this question, and I appreciate the time greatly. Uh, what, what will the game look like in three years? Will, will it be significantly different from what we've uh, witnessed uh, most recently? No, Drew, I don't know the answer to that, honestly. I mean, I, I don't know how the fans are going to respond, not just to some of the situations that have gone on between the negotiating parties. It's just what is sports going to look like as a whole uh, based upon the pandemic and how slowly is it going to come back and will it look differently when they come, when it comes back? I don't know about that. I don't know. But I do know that baseball is embedded in the fabric of our our community, and I do feel strongly that it will come back as strong as ever at some point in time. How that looks, though, I'm not sure. Well, Dan, it's good catching up. You too, Drew. Best to the family. I will talk to you soon. Thanks again. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. That interview, of course, brought to you by Ideal Home Loans. They bring you the interview of the week every single week, and we appreciate doing that. I, I really enjoyed that interview. Um you guys talked a little bit about making the transition to being a broadcaster. When you do something, I think baseball guys want to do baseball their whole life. Um, I'm not sure you meet a, ba- a baseball general manager or manager that's like, one day I want to be a broadcaster. I mean, they just, they end up doing it. And Dan O'Dad is very qualified, but I think he's, he's come into his own a little bit and you can tell he enjoys what he does. He, he has come to really uh, enjoy what he does, Julie. I mean, I, I talk to Dan on a fairly regular basis and I think he does an excellent job. And I'm not just saying that because he's a friend and, and somebody I've known a long time. Uh, Dan is, and, and I know he took, it comes with the territory. He was not always popular here in Denver. He understands that. Uh, but in terms of bright and creative and understanding the game, and as you heard him in the podcast, 
loving to continue to learn, and he's learned being on the set and just talking baseball in a different environment. Uh, you you learn a lot when I say you, me, you, anybody else when you're watching Dan on MLB Network, and uh, especially people in the industry who who watch it as part of their research. Um, I, I think he's really done a, a terrific job, and he's really come to enjoy it. And uh, I know, he, as he said, when he first got out, you want to get another GM job potentially, uh, but you also realize just like when you're a manager or a head coach in football or basketball, typically there's an expiration date on how long you'll be there. And he's made a nice transition uh, into the television world. So, you know, I, I uh, applaud him for that. And um, I applaud him for going after it just like he did as a general manager, even though you may not have agreed with every move he made. And that, again, comes with the territory. Um, he puts his heart and soul into whatever uh, endeavor he has going. And that's what he's done at MLB Network. Okay, before we go, I'm going to ask you the question. What do you do tomorrow? I, 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 you better have a better answer for me. Well, actually, Julie, first of all, in my career, this is the longest period of time that I have not gotten on a plane. It's been three and a half months since I've flown. And normally you fly every day or every other day, it seems like. And I'm flying to Big D, Dallas, Texas, because, you know, I'm coaching baseball these days. And I'm going to a tournament down there in Dallas uh, Wednesday through Sunday. So oh, I actually have a little more exciting news than typically <laughs> what I've told you when you asked me that question. You know, you're going to have to, over the last, pants, though, uh, couple to of fly, right? Because I know you haven't put on pants for three months. Uh, well, uh, I'm going to Dallas. So, I, you know, I'm going to bring a fan and, an air, and a portable air conditioner with me. And I'm not putting on pants. No. It's a great visual. Drew, happy 50th podcast and I guess the anniversary. Uh, have a safe time in Dallas, and I'll talk to you next week. Yeah, happy 50th to you, Julie. Look forward to it. Everybody stay safe out there. Baseball is back, and uh, the first game will be on July the 24th. Y'all have a good week. Leaving